Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Delicious things to eat. The popcorn can't be beat. The sparkling drinks are just dandy. The chocolate bars and the candy. So let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. On the corner of Dearborn and Division Streets in Chicago, in an area just north of the fabled Gold Coast, is a Walgreens store. Not just any Walgreens store, but the 1,000th Walgreens store, which opened on September 6, 1984, with Illinois Governor James Thompson in attendance, as well as an aging, faded movie star on hand to cut the ribbon. While some heralded the addition of this store to the neighborhood, others mourned the loss of yet another cinema in this great city. My name is Tommy Henry. Welcome to the Chicago History Podcast, where we will look at places and events in and around Chicago with which you may not be familiar. From theaters to music venues to sports auditoriums and more, we'll discuss Chicago history and maybe learn a little bit more about the greatest city in the world. Back in 1913, an entirely different building opened on the same lot on the northwest corner of Division and Dearborn, a motion picture theater called the New Dearborn Theater. The word new likely included so as not to be confused with a defunct vaudeville house with the same name. The cinema's name was later shortened to Dearborn Theater. In the early days of the theater, silent features shown often had stars of the day like Mary Pickford, Theta Barra, and Francis X. Bushman. Bushman, it should be noted, started his movie career with Bronco Billy's SNA Studios, which was based in Chicago. The films would change every day or two and were often supported by two reelers, which were about a half an hour long, war news and Hearst cartoon comedies. Matinee prices were 10 cents for adults in 1918 and 5 cents for children. Evening prices went up a nickel to 15 cents for adults and 10 cents for the kids. On Saturday, November 2nd, 1929, the Publix, Balaban, and Cats chain hosted an event to celebrate their takeover of the Greater Talkie Theater chain. At this event, thousands of balloons were released from the roofs of their theaters, which included the Berwyn Theater, the Congress, LaGrange, the Dearborn, and others. Hundreds of the balloons contained passes to the Publix, Balaban, and Cats new chain of Publix Greater Talkie Theaters. At 1.30 p.m. that day, a parade of General Motors cars left each of the theaters and joined together at, you guessed it, the Dearborn Theater, 40 West Division Street. By the way, leading this parade was the specially designed Publix Theater's radio-equipped automobile, said to cost $30,000 at the time. Adjusted for inflation, that is roughly $450,000 today. Executives from Publix, Balaban, and Cats were to fly over each theater at the moment the balloons were released to get pictures and film footage, but alas, I have not found any footage from the event. On May 7, 1942, the theater was renamed the Surf Theater. The ad in the Chicago Tribune on that day read, 
All dressed up and someplace to go, the surf plan for theater going combines tasteful surroundings in a gay mood with unobtrusive but friendly service. Add a single selected feature, the surf digest of news and views, and you have the modern design for entertainment at moderate prices. Claudette Colbert, Ray Milland, and Brian Ahern in Skylark, and the Surf Digest mirrors the world today in short subjects. Complete performances at 8 and 10.05 p.m. In 1956, it was at the Surf Theater where the film classic Citizen Kane was shown for the first time since its original release in 1941. A 20-year-old William Friedkin, a graduate of Chicago's Sen High School, who was working in the mailroom at WGN-TV at the time, went to see a noon screening of Citizen Kane at the Surf. Friedkin claims to have stayed all day, watching it five times in a row. Quote, I entered the surf at noon and didn't get out until midnight, Friedkin recalls. I saw it five straight times, and it was a profound experience that led me to believe film could have a great influence on people's lives. Friedkin, if you don't recognize the name, later went on to direct The French Connection and The Exorcist, to name a few. On May 16, 1963, actor Ricardo Montalban greeted theatergoers in person in the surf lobby to help promote The Reluctant Saint, a film in which he appeared alongside Maximilian Schell and Italian actress Leah Padovani. Ads from various newspapers show movies at the surf lean toward arthouse films of the day, including Ingmar Bergman films, Porgy and Bess, Laurence Olivier's Henry V, The Little Kidnappers, and others. In early 1963, the surf theater closed. An ad in the Help Wanted section of the September 17, 1964 Chicago Tribune read, Girls, if you are a pretty young girl who would like to work as a theater bunny in the soon-to-open Playboy Theater, we have a job for you. We have full-time and part-time jobs, weekends and weekdays. You may be a cashier bunny, a lobby bunny, or a hostess bunny. Apply in person to the personnel department, 232 East Ohio, between 9 and 5. Those, uh, I might say, were different times, to be sure. While the theater's longtime original entrance was on Division Street, it was later moved to the Dearborn side, about where a restaurant called Eduardo's Inateca is today. During the build-up to the opening of the Playboy Theater, columnist May Tinney wrote in the Chicago Tribune, quote, Contrary to some previous reports, there will be bunnies, but no booze, at the Playboy Theater. The girls will serve coffee when the former Surf Theater reopens September 29th after extensive remodeling, which will include a new marquee and canopy, walnut paneling in the lobby, which will be furnished in contemporary style, and new lighting. The Playboy Theater did indeed open on September 29th, and the opening feature was nothing but the best, a comedy starring Alan Bates and Denholm Elliott. An ad in the October 9th, 1964 Chicago Tribune read, Why is all Chicago talking about the Playboy Theater? Its first feature is the highly acclaimed British satire, Nothing But the Best, called, quote, the happiest mixture of murder and mirth since Guinness went straight. Plus, Playboy Playtime featurettes, a comedy tale of Fanny Hill and Dudley Do-Right of the Mounties. And many Chicagoans are getting their first close-up look at the famous Playboy Bunnies, an attraction once reserved for Playboy Club key holders, but now available to all Chicago's movie-going public as a pleasant part of the smart new Playboy Theater decor. Popular prices prevail throughout all continuous performances. Evenings, $1.80. Matinees on Saturday and Sunday, $1.50. Parking just one block away at 1225 North State Parkway. Three hours, 50 cents. 
In addition to art house, mainstream, some risque movie selections, and the Chicago International Film Festival during its early years, the Playboy Theater also hosted live events. In April of 1966, the Playboy Theater was the site of Sounds for a Swingin' Sunday, two performances featuring the Chicago Jazz Ensemble with 22 of Chicago's finest musicians, according to the ad, conducted by William Russo. Side note, in September of 1971, a judge ruled that a theater in Lake Worth, Florida, and one in Jacksonville, Florida, had to stop using the name Playboy Theater as it infringed on the parent company of Playboy Magazine's patents. In early October 1976, Playboy showed its last films, The Producers, plus Monty Python and the Holy Grail, before shutting their doors. In an October 10, 1976 column about the state of movie theaters, Chicago Tribune film critic Gene Siskel noted, quote, Management of the Playboy was a haphazard affair over the years, even though Playboy chief Hugh Hefner is an avid film freak. In the same column, Ron Lichterman, the theater manager of the Playboy Theater, was quoted as saying, We could have run American Graffiti, a monster hit, exclusively three years ago, but we had to play Playboy's own picture, The Naked Ape, a financial bust. Quote, we had an exclusive shot at Flesh Gordon, another hit, Lichterman continued, but no one was willing to come up with a $35,000 guarantee. People who knew nothing about the movie business were making the decisions. On October 8, 1976, a group of investors took over the theater and renamed it the Chelex Theater. Chelex, spelled C-H-E-L-E-X. On October 12th, Gene Siskel reviewed The Last Affair at the Chelex, which was directed by the head of the Chelex investors, a man named Henri Charbakshi, opening his review with the line, You will probably not see a worse film this year. In January of 1977, a column devoted to changes in movie theaters around Chicago in the previous year, Siskel wrote, quote, On the north side, a number of important theaters changed ownership. Richard Stern added the Devon to his Wilmette Theater. Plitt Theaters acquired the Esquire and then opened its four Water Tower Place mini-cinemas. And a group of local investors bought the Playboy and stupidly changed its name to the Chalex Theater. In parentheses, Siska went on to write, How about the Daily Theater, fellas? The Chalex allegedly lost $100,000, over $400,000 in 2019 money, during its short time open. On June 1st, 1978, Siskel ended a column with and finally, kiss the Chelex Theater, 1204 North Dearborn Street, goodbye. It will reopen June 3rd with new owners and a new name, the Sandberg Theater. As expected on June 3rd, 1977, the new theater was renamed one final time as the Sandberg Theater. The first film shown was Silver Streak with Richard Pryor and Gene Wilder, which had opened in first-run theaters seven months before, with admission set at $1.50. By December of that year, the Sandberg was, quote, closed for remodeling, never to reopen under those owners again. In a June 25, 1978 Tribune article, Gene Siskel compared the Sandberg with the nearby Village Theater on Clark, roughly a half a mile away, writing, quote, The bunch of theater operators who renamed the theater the Sandberg never seemed to care about showing good movies. They also didn't care about heating the place. The last time I reviewed a picture at the Sandberg, it was so cold I wore gloves to take notes. 
In May of 1979, best friends Bill Horberg, then 19, and Albert Berger, all of 21 years old, leased the shuttered Sandberg Theater, setting out to open a repertory house. In a December 1999 article in the Chicago Reader, Horberg said, quote, The theater had fallen into a state of disrepair. Despite that, it was a thrilling business experience. The theater was very successful for what it was. It was a single screen, so it was hard to make it a profitable venture. We got locked into the economics. But we showed a Hitchcock festival, Ophel's films, we premiered Fassbender movies and showed everything from The Thin Man and The Searchers to the revival premiere of Peeping Tom. While Horberg felt the theater had a strong core audience, it couldn't compete with the arrival of VCRs. After two years, the two friends sold their lease to Larry Edwards, then the owner of the Biograph Theater. Edwards ran the theater for just a year. Quote, There was a fire across the street, Horberg says, and the landlord canceled all of the leases. The Sandberg Theater lasted until April 1983, when it was closed and demolished. Horberg, it should be noted, went on to fame as a Hollywood producer, having a hand in the films The Talented Mr. Ripley with Matt Damon, Cold Mountain with Nicole Kidman, The Kite Runner, Milk with Sean Penn, and many other high-profile and award-winning releases. By the way, the aging, faded movie star I referred to earlier in the podcast, that was the then 80-year-old Cary Grant, who had not acted in a film since 1966's romantic comedy Walk, Don't Run, who was on hand with his fifth wife, Betty, to promote Fabergé cosmetics and perfumes. Grant, it seems, left acting and joined Fabergé in 1968 as a company director, helping grow the brand. Fans of the theater have noted the irony in having Cary Grant, also said to be a personal friend of Walgreens heiress Betty Walgreen, there to cut the ribbon on the site where so many fans enjoyed Grant's films over the years. Do you have memories of this theater under any of its many names? Something important I may have missed? Maybe you have a topic you think might be a good fit for a future episode of the Chicago History Podcast. If so, send me an email at chicagohistorypod at gmail.com. As always, get out and explore, learn more about whatever city you live in, and stay safe.